presented with Sydney Ideas, the Department of Media and Communications and Sydney Democracy Network. And so I'd like to thank Lindy Baker and uh, Professor John Keane uh, for their support. Tonight, the event's being recorded by APAC uh, for broadcast and also will be recorded um, for podcast as well. Uh, so please just bear that in mind. And when we do the Q&A after Professor Coldry's lecture, uh, we just want to make sure people stay on mic so we get good sound and, sound and vision for that. Okay, so let me just uh, briefly introduce our uh, distinguished speaker this evening. Uh, Professor Nick Coldry is a sociologist of media and culture, particularly with a focus on symbolic power over the two decades or so of his uh, work. He's very distinguished and well-known uh, internationally, um, He's Professor of Media Communications and Social Theory and Head of the Department of Media and Communications at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Professor Calder is the author or editor of 12 books. The most recent is The Mediated Construction of Reality with Andreas Hepp. Uh, there's The Ethics of Media 2013, Media Society World, Social Theory and Digital Media Practice, uh, and Why Voice Matters, Culture and Politics After Neoliberalism. Um, you might be already familiar with uh, Professor Coldry's work. I think one of his gifts uh, is real uh, clarity in terms of how he presents issues. Dealing with, uh, I think, the issues around media and culture and the, the, uh, the lecture he's giving tonight, um, looking at the heart of the transformations around things like digital technologies, these are complex issues, but they really need our public attention. They really need our critical scrutiny. We we'll really need our research. So we're really delighted, Nick, to welcome you. It's a real privilege for us, and we're really looking forward to hearing what you have to say. Thank you. Sorry. I've got a radio mic. I didn't want that in the way for the filming. Sorry about the sound effects. Well, thank you very much for the warm introduction, Jared. It's great to be here with you, a long-term colleague. It's great to be here in Sydney, of course. I had the privilege of a holiday last week in Sydney. Uh, it's great to be at the University of Sydney. And it's great to be here to have the opportunity to speak as part of this really exciting Sydney Ideas series in its 10th year. I'm really uh, thrilled to be here. And in my talk, I want, to, I want to start us off with a small thought experiment. Imagine, if you can, a period long before today's internet-based connectivity. Imagine that in that now distant time, the populations of every country were offered a plan. The plan, through a miraculous combination of microphones, cameras, transmission grids, and so on, would involve the linking up of every space of social interaction, or every important one, most sites of work, a large proportion of private moments of reflection, and a significant proportion of family interactions. And once linked up miraculously, all these diverse spaces of human life would, so the plan would go, be transposed onto a single seamless plane of archiving, monitoring and processing that those populations will be told will bring a number of remarkable consequences. 
The first consequence would be that each one of these once separate sites could be connectable in real time to every other. And the contents of what went on there would become linkable to the contents of all other sites. Second, less good perhaps, every site would in principle be monitorable from every other and for certain purposes would be monitored by institutions with the appropriate infrastructure. Third, maybe positively, this seamless plane of connection would provide the basis for building new types of knowledge claim about the human world which would never have been linked as a totality in that way before. And finally, finally but more worryingly, those knowledge claims will be linked to new ways of categorizing individuals as they were monitored and drawing judgments from those categorizations in the interests not of them but of private and state power. Now can we imagine those distant populations accepting such a proposal without hesitation? Probably not, I suggest. Yet this in crude outline is the world whose recent arrival we are being asked to celebrate today. That world has been made possible by a progressive shift over the past 30 years in our infrastructures of communication. Now we all know that communication matters, that's a cliche, but the contribution of institutions of communication to economies, societies, and governments often has been forgotten in the history of our world. But these recent changes in communication infrastructure demand our attention since they're changing fundamentally the nature of institutional power. More than that, we're in the early stages, I want to suggest, of a large-scale attempt to reshape the very possibilities of social order in such a way as to radically expand the scope of market functioning and commercial exploitation. Now, I'm referring here not just to the fact of today's internet, the many layers through which we connect or are connected, social media, apps, the data harvest of the internet of things, I'm referring also to the shifts in value associated with these facts, emerging norms of connectivity, the emerging hope that human life can become increasingly governed through the data that our connections generate, and the emerging assumption that the route to economic value and better lives lies through more connectedness because that means more data. This shift towards permanent connectedness can be viewed from many directions. Some see it as a new phase of capitalism. What Shoshana Zuboff of Harvard Business School calls surveillance capitalism. For Zuboff, surveillance capitalism involves three points in particular. First, a distinctive emphasis on data extraction rather than the production of new goods or services. Second, the very intense concentration of power over such extraction in a small set of non-labor-intensive corporations, such as Google, and the data sectors that they dominate. And third, which is what I'll focus on, the negative implications of this transformation for values such as freedom. Now, I want to build on Shoshana Zuboff's sense that a major transformation in business strategy and economic organization is underway today, and I want to reflect on the social costs. Ah, that's why I was... Struggling there, yes, <laughs> slight delay there. The social costs of this transformation, the price of connection. Now, of course, connection itself is not the problem. 
On the contrary, it may be an enhancement of what we as human beings can do together. But it's what comes with connection, in particular, it's infrastructures of surveillance that comprises the Faustian bargain whose terms we urgently need to evaluate. And my talk will be in three parts. First, I want to provide some historical context for how things worked out this way. Second, I'll try to explain why the problem seems much of the time to be hidden from us. And third, I'll explore what resources we might have to address this problem, which amounts, I believe, to an impending, slow-building crisis in democratic life. Now, let's start with some high-speed history. In the past three centuries, the infrastructure of communication required for economic and social expansion remained closely linked to the spaces that were governable by nation-states and broadly compatible, more or less, with the normative principles on which democracy was based. We know, of course, that in the past four decades, globalized connection generated various processes that challenged the boundaries of nation-state governments, but not necessarily challenging the freedoms on which democracy had been founded. In the current era, which we might call late, late modernity, however, the balance, I think, is different. Key to this is the emergence over 60 years of today's internet. The internet's history has often been told as the story of a technology of freedom. And certainly it is a very major development which changes irrevocably the scale on which we are in touch with each other. On the face of it, this contributes very positively to all manner of human needs. But it's too simple, I think, to see the internet as a technology of freedom, since its basis is not freedom, but connection. The connectability of all packets of information and all sites from which we access the internet and all actors in that space of connection. In the past 10 years, our modes of access have multiplied. Until today, we discuss embedding automated connection into domestic objects, fridges and the like, the internet of things. This deepening of connection, the requirement now to be connected, brings into focus a two-way bargain. If every point in space-time is connectable to every other, then by the same token, it is susceptible to monitoring from every other. Understanding, then, the social and political consequences of such connectivity involves a number of steps. First, we have to notice the profound shift in the organization of human life that flows from the normalization of continuous access to the Internet for social actors. Now, of course, the norm for many people, many millions of people, is not realized. But even the assumption of it has enormous consequences. The idea of a many-to-many -many communication space was already inherent in the small networks set up between computers in the 1960s. But then it benefited only elite communicators. Diffusing network transmission and reception across large percentages of the population through the commercialization of the internet in the mid-1990s has, of course, changed the basic resources of everyday social reaction. And the new book that I've just finished, The Mediated Construction of Reality, is about that transformation in a less political way than I'll be talking tonight. From the mid-2000s, new types of interaction space, social media, then started to make possible mass self-communication, unimaginable a decade before. 
the space of social action was thereby transformed from a space in which possibilities for action at a distance, if you like, had to be specifically loaded via particular technological uses, phone, radio, email, and so on, into the space we now live in, which is where that space is at all times, if you like, sprung with the potential for acting at a distance and being acted on from multiple distances and multiple directions and in multiple modalities. And this transformation has fundamental implications. Not the least of these implications is that social action, at least if conducted online, necessarily now involves not just actions between individuals, but actions by corporations on individuals. Corporations, as large-scale assemblages of agency and resource, obviously have capacities to act more continuously in time and space than individuals do. So they can act more effectively on the space-time of the social. Social space-time has become open, if you like, to saturation by corporate action, directed at the making of profit by corporations, and the regulation or modification of action by governments, and Zuboff suggests by corporations too. As Joseph Thoreau writes, and he's the best analyst of the transformations in the advertising industry that I'm going to come to, quotes, the centrality of corporate power is a direct reality at the very heart of the digital age. Third, all who aim to communicate beyond a small defined audience face a deep challenge now, which drives them to use this new institutional potential for acting on the social. The challenge derives directly from the transformed nature of social space. Actors of all kinds now, of course, have hugely increased capacities to send messages in all directions, which they often exercise. So the volume of messages in circulation has increased exponentially, and that creates two simple problems. The need to filter out most messages in order to focus on a more manageable subset of them, and the need for tools to search for or otherwise readily find particular contents through search engines, apps, and so on. Each person then comes increasingly to engage with the world through a system-based filtering, which in turn increases the difficulty for generalized communicators to target messages to those particular audiences. In response, advertisers increasingly now try to reach audiences not through messages, not through ads in the middle of TV programs or radio programs or newspapers, but through the continuous tracking of individuals wherever they are online. And the paradigm of this shift on the largest scale is not advertisers themselves, but Google, which services the advertisers. Google, which provides an infrastructure for the new advertisers based not on tracking customers in the traditional sense, customers who enter into a monetary transaction for the supply of goods or services, but on tracking every online social process without limit, and to that end, maximizing the percentage of social life that occurs online. Zuboff quotes Google chief economist Hal Varian, who wrote, why does Google give away products? Anything that increases internet use ultimately enriches Google. More eyeballs on the web lead inexorably to more ad sales for Google. And since prediction and analysis are so crucial to Google's ad words, every bit of data, no matter how seemingly trivial, has potential value. As a result, our infrastructures of communication 
designed to, we would have thought, to enhance communication, are now designed not just to enhance communication, but through the rise of generalized interfaces that we call platforms, designed to ensure that people spend as much time as possible just there, on the platforms. Platforms are a way of optimizing the overlap between the domain of social interaction and the domain of profit. The simple term platform belies the dramatic move underway from a world until the mid-2000s of largely non-networked social action, which was concentrated nowhere in particular. It could never really add up to a single network of networks to a world from the mid-2000s, which we now take for granted, of pervasively networked social action, which is organized through the passing points of a small number of platforms, of course, under corporate ownership. And this transformation has a fifth consequence, that economic value increasingly depends not just, as it has done for centuries, on the direct selling of goods or services, if you like, the intensive commercial activity that you have to engage in in an only partly networked social space, which was the position up to 2005, now economic value also comes to depend on the selling of data about potential future actions, the protensive commercial activity from which data can now be generated in a pervasively networked space. Now let's leave aside, we may debate this later, whether businesses are actually right to put such high value on the big data, whose generation drives not only social media platforms, but many other developments such as the Internet of Things. There are those in management studies, for example, who raise major doubts about the long-term value of such data, at least for the quality of business strategy making. But what matters in any case within the discourses around big data to which I'll return is not so much its quality as its size, its comprehensiveness. It's as if the insatiable appetite of capitalism has become channeled now into expanding the proportion of social life that is open, or you could say vulnerable to, data collection and data processing. It's as if the social itself is the target of the new capitalism. As Constantiu and my LSE colleague Kalinikos note, quotes, it's in big data, quasocial data, that much of the novelty and reforming potency of the trends subsumed under the label of big data reside. So what are the costs of this for the social? Now this isn't the first time that changes in business models based in new technologies of communication, have had far-reaching significance for social life. James Benninger, 30 years ago in his book, The Control Revolution, gave a brilliant analysis of the emergence of mass markets, modern mass markets, through the coordinating power of electronic communications and newspapers as well, in 19th century North America and Europe. But what we are seeing today, I want to suggest, goes much wider than that transformation. We're witnessing the attempt through communication infrastructure to funnel, to channel all social action into a vast continuous space across which value can be seamlessly generated. We're looking at the incorporation of every aspect and process of social life into the economy, 
for the purpose of the continuous generation of data. And the practical precondition of this transformation is obvious, but I will argue insufficiently reflected upon. It is the continuous collection of data, with or without consent. As Bruce Schneier put it bluntly three years ago, the primary business model of the internet is built on mass surveillance. So have we reflected sufficiently on the potential costs of this? That's my topic tonight. Now, I'm not claiming, in case you're worried, that there's any conspiracy at work here. I'm not claiming that society or, and the economy is being taken over by a single oppressive logic, although Zuboff's surveillance capitalism thesis might sound that way, but that's not my thesis. My point is that many independent forces have come to converge through a radically new infrastructure of connection, converge on a particular way of imagining economic growth in which, without any ill intent, the embedding of human subjects within a grid of continuous conveillance has become a necessary requirement for that growth. In which case, the consequences of such continuous surveillance for wider social relations and perhaps even for happiness for the conditions of individual life, are just a corollary of something that seems much more important. But my argument will be that those costs for human life of surveillance are too important to be dismissed as mere collateral damage. As Zuboff notes, the link between big data and our status as subjects isn't accidental. As she writes, it is the status of such data as signals of subjectivities that makes them most valuable for advertisers. So none of this is accidental. So shouldn't we ask what consequences surveillance capitalism has for the values that we have for so long associated with individual subjects? Values such as autonomy, that until now have seemed to underlie our notions of democratic practice. And that's what I'm going to do in a few minutes. But before I get to that, I want to address an objection you might have here. You might be asking impatiently, well, if what's underway is, as I'm saying, an expansion of surveillance, how come we don't see it right in front of us? How come we aren't already getting very angry about this transformation? We never liked, I use the word we very loosely here, to address all of us in this audience, but none, no, no set of human beings ever liked mass surveillance in its earlier forms. The witch trials of the 17th century, the Spanish Inquisition, the surveillance states of 20th century Russia or East Germany. When we watch a film about former East Germanys, such as the lives of others, we feel a compassion for the lead character, the lonely surveillance operative condemned to a life of watching the lives of others that both he and we know is profoundly wrong. So how can the whole infrastructure of surveillance that was in another context so obviously wrong suddenly become right, indeed celebrated, when performed by other actors in different contexts, for example, startup companies on the American West Coast? One explanation is that this surveillance does not appear to us as an end in itself. It has no value, after all, unless there is something valuable to surveil data. And that something results in part from us, individuals, being encouraged to generate data about ever more aspects of our lives. 
what Jose van Dyck, brilliant analyst in Holland, calls datafication. And we're doing this for many overlapping reasons. First of all, we're told that the benefits of data interpretation that flow from that prior infrastructure of data collection are transformative for the human race. Health is a key area here, as you no doubt know. The benefits of interpreting, and so necessarily gathering, collecting, big data, are often presented as very clear. They are, for example, a revolution in self-care, which actually keeps somebody safe and feeling good. That's a phrase from Professor Bruce Keogh, medical director of the UK National Health Service, quoted in January last year. And health is just one of many areas where individual submission to continuous external surveillance, based on an infrastructure of connection, is regarded as a clear benefit. The quantified self-movement has promoted such an understanding, using some interesting moves to make natural the claim that self-surveillance and the systematic sharing of our data that goes with it is somehow good for us, transformative. The names of the software used is often eloquent. For example, the self-tracker called Direct Life, sold by Philips in 2008. I don't know if it's still running. Maybe you know whether it is or not. So I'm interested in the metaphor. Is that direct in the sense of necessarily mediated through a remote system of data collection and tracking? Well, only if we understand that system to be a tool that gives us direct access to the level where the real truth of our bodies actually lies. Gary Wolf, guru of the quantified self-movement in his 2010 article, The Data-Driven Life, proposes just that when he writes that, quotes, automated sensors do more than give us facts. They also remind us that our ordinary behavior contains obscure quantitative signals that can be used to inform our behavior once we learn to read them, end of quote. So our lives are now seen as always already data. Game playing based on such data flows in daily life thereby comes to seem natural. Even as Jennifer Whitson notes, the use of system-produced data to repair our obviously always fallible memories. We could just imagine ourselves in 10 years' time, a little attachment on the head or somewhere which will just correct for those embarrassing lapses of memory. Who is this? I'm just making, etc. Maybe that will be good. That's the suggestion. And the result of all this can be seen even quite comforting. Uh, if, you, if you turn to the Journal of Personalized Medicine, you might thought not a place for casual uh, and, and remarks of value judgments. Melanie Swan writes of the technology blanket that always-on self-tracking devices provide. Behind this lie the commercial pressures, not just from the specialized data industries, but from the businesses that provide the interfaces across which data is collected and where social norms of sharing data are inculcated. Now, without needing any social movement to champion them, social media platforms on which we all no doubt take part, such as Facebook, used by approximately 20% of the world's entire population, have grown large on business models that assume the generation and sale of data through the continuous tracking of what individuals do on those platforms. We all know that. The question is, why are we accepting it? The normalization of surveillance, and not just self-surveillance, often comes with economic force. The interest of health insurance companies in subjects doing some self-tracking of their bodies is pretty obvious. 
It's just one entry point, but it is an obvious one. Consider a story in the London Guardian three weeks ago about an in-car observation device for young drivers that insurers are now offering as part of a deal for reduced insurance premiums. The headline in the hard copy edition, sadly not in the online edition, maybe an editor got to it first, was a helpful spy behind the dashboard is a young driver's new best friend. This is the Guardian. Meanwhile, wider business language is being reformed across the board around the idea of datafication. I've been researching this with the help of Jun Yu from LSE in a project that is actually called The Price of Connection. We've just started it in January. I only have time to mention the main move that influential actors such as the World Economic Forum, the OECD, McKinsey, PwC, and many others now make when they talk about big data. And this move is not normative. That will be too contested. It's ontological. One might naively think, one would if one hadn't imagined this discourse in the first place, that data is produced through the distinctive process of people giving consent to the collection of data about themselves and later to its use for various purposes. After all, the Latin etymology of the term data, that which has been given, suggests that something has to first be given. But that's not how these powerful actors think about data. Instead, they refer to it as something already there, a natural social resource, like oil, like a new type of raw material that's on a par with capital and labor. That's phrases directly from the World Economic Reports in 2011 and 2012 on big data. They also talk about it as a big new asset class, the primary currency of the global economy. They sound rather similar phrases, but actually there's a big difference. Because to say that data is a currency or an asset class is, of course, still a sort of economic or social analysis. Maybe Marx, if he were still alive, would have said this. But to say metaphorically that data is oil or raw material is a sort of verbal magic that denies the social process through which data is produced so that it can have value. And if data is just out there, ready to be taken, ready to be used well or badly, then any problems about privacy, any protests about the collection of data, the proper use, obviously need some attention. But they're merely side effects that have to be mitigated. But what if the collection of data itself is already the problem? That's exactly what the broader ideology of dataism, again, I'm using a wonderful article by Josef van Dijk, that's what this, the ideology of dataism must deny, works very hard to deny. Dataism, quoting van Dijk, is a widespread belief in the objective quantification and potential tracking of all kinds of human behavior and sociality through online media technologies. We know it's out there. We know it's tracking us. We're all aware of this. Others, including myself, have talked about the myths of big data. The myth not only that big data are neutral and unbiased, just because they're so big, but also the myth that they offer a big window, a direct window, into a more fundamental level of reality. We shouldn't be surprised, again with a historical perspective, we shouldn't be surprised at such attempts to reimagine the social through data for fundamentally economically driven purposes. 
Because, as Karl Polanyi's brilliant account of the social conflicts that surrounded early capitalism reminds us, major economic transformation always involves social engineering. In the late 18th and 19th centuries, the issue was the shift from a subsistence economy based around family production within wider, very conservative relations of domination, to the creation of modern markets through which all, as he puts it, social relations will become embedded in the economic system. The market, in Polanyi's view, and of course contrary to Adam Smith, is not, was not, natural. It's instead a social production. Or, as Polanyi put it more provocatively, markets require the effect of highly artificial stimulants administered to the body social. Stimulants that enable people to become accustomed to the governance of economic life across space through market signals. That was the transformation of the 19th century. Exactly in different form what Zuboff sees happening now when, as she writes, the logic of accumulation under surveillance capitalism, is producing its own social relations. Today, the social stimulation needed is, of course, not to create networked markets. They've existed for 200 years or more. But rather something more radical, more fundamental, to link every social activity that could happen, whether of economic consequence or not on the face of it, into a datafied plane what I prefer to call a managed continuity, from which the value can be generated. And so new types of market transaction, transaction can be made possible, which were not possible before. Through this new form of social engineering, we become part of and subject to market principles, whether or not we plan to be engaged in economic activity, even in the ordinary course of social interaction. This social transformation, and it certainly is that, is impossible, indeed unthinkable, without the communication infrastructure of the internet. It is the various forms of connection and monitoring made possible by the global architecture of computer mediation that constitute the plane of operations that is the space of surveillance capitalism. Now there are in some today deep social and cultural pressures themselves based in profound and, from their own point of view, absolutely necessary and uncontestable economic imperatives that are encouraging large numbers of people across the planet to see as positive the embedding of continuous surveillance within everyday life, something that for a long time was definitely not seen as positive. I call this a sort of motivated blindness of which I'm involved myself. I tweet. <laughs> I'm not immune from this. I'm just trying to reflect on what it is I've got myself into. Certainly a lot of work is needed on the part of the commercial and other institutions to ensure that we keep looking ahead through the cultural and social filter they provide, not seeing what we're getting ourselves into. Yes, you might be thinking the Snowden revelations were very important here. Didn't they change things? Well, the Snowden revelations about the continuous intercepting by the NSA and GCHQ of the data streams of commercial internet companies such as Google raised certainly fundamental questions about political liberty, as the great political theorist Quentin Skinner noted when he wrote that not merely the fact that someone is reading my emails, 
but also the fact that someone has the power to do so, should they choose, leaves us at the mercy of arbitrary power. What is offensive to liberty is the very existence of such arbitrary power. But he doesn't draw the conclusion from that, which is that if it was the existence of such power that contradicts liberty, then surely we should have been offended by the power already vested in the commercial surveillance infrastructure on which powerful states, we found out, were merely piggybacking. True, there have been intermittent protests against what Sylvia Vaidyanathan calls Google's infrastructure imperialism, for example, its data collection raids via Street View, but that wasn't the main thrust of the post-Snowden debate, as we know. It's as if we do not see as arbitrary, in corporate hands, power that automatically seems arbitrary, is arbitrary to us, in the hands of the state. One reason why the alibi enjoyed by corporate surveillance, that it, the real work of surveillance has been done elsewhere by the bad guys, remains effective. One reason that alibi remains effective is, as already noted, that we ourselves, the users of digital platforms, are willing accomplices. We submit every day to external data collection. And worse, we keep each other under mutual monitoring, so-called covalence. But we shouldn't accept here a simple redistribution of the responsibility. That would be to ignore the key principle of Zuboff, which is that surveillance capitalism is not just about tracking, it's about modifying behavior, including the most basic modification of all, training us to submit to data collection. Until that submission becomes automatic, woven into the very fabric of social action. Dave Eggers, in his wonderful novel, The Circle, from 2013, captures this, I think, quite brilliantly. There's a moment where one character criticizes another for writing an entry about a very nice walk in San Francisco somewhere in her manuscript diary. This is what the character says. My problem with paper is that all communication dies with it. It holds no possibility of continuity. It ends with you, like you're the only one who matters. But if you've been using a tool that would help confirming the identity of whatever birds you've seen, then anyone can benefit. Knowledge is lost every day through this short, sort of short-sightedness. So on this imagined corporate view, but as it happens, it fits exactly with Zuboff's analysis of what is really going on. The moral failure is on the side of the individual who does not contribute to the management of the continuity, the sustaining of the data plane on which surveillance capitalism depends. And this, moving beyond the bounds of Zuboff's analysis, suggests an entirely new way, speaking as a sociologist, of binding subjects into a social order, if you like, an informational feudalism, which requires us to give up any claim to ownership of the data that can be extracted by someone somewhere from the stream of our lives in return, maybe a good bargain you might think, for secure access to the infrastructure of social life. Just as peasants, and I'm no historian so don't quiz me on the details, just as peasants were required to give up any claim to own the land that they worked in return for secure access to food. There's something wrong here. But what exactly? 
This is something that with Ulysses Mechias from State University of New York, I'm trying to get clear in a new writing project that we're just starting this year. And to get at the problem, it's not for sure enough to repeat the old slogans. Yes, there is a prima facie, facie tension between the social order of surveillance capitalism and negative notions of liberty. I've already touched on that through Quentin Skinner. To rely on this, however, won't challenge a situation where, as Zuboff puts it, privacy itself is being redistributed. Where informational institutions such as Google demand now enhanced rights to commercial privacy, to protect the algorithms and so on, in order to undergird their right to keep individuals under continuous surveillance. Indeed, one way of reading the cultural force of the quantified self-movement is as an attempt to redefine the domain of the self so as to reconfigure the map of privacy rights entirely. When liberal views of individual freedom propose delegating autonomy en masse to external institutions for supposed benefit, then they're not going to help us very much here. So if there is to be an effective response to this transformation, then the argument must start from somewhere else. And that is, I suggest, from the social grounding of the values of individual autonomy that we have espoused for centuries. Otherwise, we really can't make sense of how new social forces are now coming into conflict with inherited social norms that important, such as the notion that individuals need a space of autonomous action from which to have a life. It was the strength, however, of Friedrich Hegel's social theory and I must admit, I have not, I'm not a Hegel expert, and I had never felt the need to go and read the difficult texts of Hegel until I front, confronted this problem, but I don't, didn't know where else to turn for a starting point. It was the strength of Hegel's social theory to emphasize that in the words of Robert Pippin, one of his leading interpreters, freedom is possible only if one is already in a certain institutional norm-governed relation to others which means that the practical form of such relations can sometimes be at odds with the norms that govern those relations. So that we start to feel ourselves, quoting Pippin again, we feel ourselves to be part of a practice that has either gone dead or requires of us further commitments which are incompatible with the other commitments which are necessary within our form of life. Under these circumstances, Zittlichkeit, which is Hegel's German term for the intelligible form of life that enables some fit between the individual and the social and the social and the individual, that form of life breaks down. Its norms lose legitimacy. And to quote another leading Hegel interpreter, Terry Pinkard, the lives in a form of life become uninhabitable. That's the contradictory situation towards which, maybe over a long period, we are moving, I believe. And it goes much deeper than the directed coup from above that Zuboff sees at work in the surveillance economy. It's much deeper, more profound than that. Because we are involved in this coup. It's a coup against ourselves, in a sense. At the heart of Hegel's social reading of the conditions for individual autonomy is the idea of mutuality. The idea that in social life we encounter each other and in the process come to recognize and value each other as actors of a particular sort. And the point is not that 
you understand me in exactly the same way that I understand you? Absolutely not. We're positioned differently in social space from each other. That's the point of Hegel's famous master-slave dialectic, or one of them. But what's important is that the factors that shape the differences between your perception of me and my perception of myself are similar in kind to the factors which shape the differences between my perception of you and your perception of yourself. At the core of such mutual recognition is the registering of some space of autonomy where an individual can be in a reflective relation with herself and with others. And it's this, I suggest, that becomes harder to sustain, potentially, under surveillance capitalism. For Hegel, building on Kant, a free life needs to be a self-sufficient life in which, as Pippin puts it, nothing from outside, nothing not me, determines my actions. But in case you're worried about that word determines, it's not for Hegel that autonomy requires a life entirely free from constraints. Again, absolutely not. An autonomous life involves in large part the reflexive adaptation to constraints. But at the core of autonomy instead is having in some sense an inner life, enjoying one's own right of subjectivity. For this is the basis on which selves recognize others as having the same status as moral agents that they assume themselves to have. And as Pippin notes, this need for recognition is not just something desirable, it's necessary. It underpins the very possibility of freedom. As Hegel himself put it, bring Hegel in for once, freedom is this, to be with oneself in the other. And in a world where our moment-to-moment -moment existence becomes already tracked, and according to quantified selfers and the corporations that service them, already better understood by external data processing systems, then the very idea of an independent space of subjectivity from which one can enjoy freedom collapses. Corporate power is always already closer to the subject than other human beings can be. This other, an external system with data processing capacities far beyond those of a human brain, is not the other that Hegel had in mind when thinking about the mutuality of recognition nor, I believe, is mutuality somehow magically built by a row of quantified selfers across the planet submitting in parallel to external data processing authorities. You might say this is still a rather abstract, it could hardly be more abstract, quoting Hegel, way of posing the problem of living under continuous corporate surveillance. Who in the data industry is going to care whether Hegel would have been happy with this? And it's true that we can do something to buttress this general argument legally. There is a legal argument in the United States, for example, for informational privacy, but it would appear to lack support in the American Constitution for various reasons. There is also, more hopefully, the right to free development of a person's personality, which is enshrined in Article 2 of the German Basic Law, the German Constitution, which insists on the need of individuals to have a space in which they can mature and grow as civic subjects, a law which sees this as the basis for any notion of democratic participation. And also it's true that proposed new data protection regulations in Europe go strongly in this direction. So there are signs of hope for support for the general notion of autonomy. But those, and there are many of them, who insist nonetheless 
on the overall benefits of today's information infrastructure and this infrastructure surveillance, these principles still will remain too abstract. So let me get a little bit more concrete. We can, I think, identify at least three specific negative consequences, maybe you will think of others, from the challenge to individual autonomy constituted by continuous corporate surveillance. The first is that the default assumption of surveillance at the heart of the current business models change our relationship to infrastructure. This seems like a trivial academic point. I think it's more important. I call it the problem of tool reversibility. We may aim to use a tool, such as a new platform or app, but in our very act of using it, we know that it is already using us and gathering data not just to support our better use of the platform or app, that will be fine probably, but towards other ends, commercial ends which are not our ends, and in any case only very partially disclosed to us. Imagine, if you like, a hammer that at the very moment we picked it up was monitoring on behalf of distant bases and databases and power centers how much longer we were likely to be able to go on picking it up. Or when we would sun it, well, can't pick up a hammer anymore, Maybe we need to look at the insurance premiums. Yet this is how all tools are increasingly operating in a datafied environment, whose wider plane of interoperability is driven above all by the imperatives of data collection and data aggregation. That's the first problem. The second problem de develops from the first. A necessary element of data collection is categorization. Without that, nothing could be gathered as data. Nothing could be placed in the organized structure, which is a database. It wouldn't be data. But within commercial settings, it's inevitable that categorization is used not for pure knowledge, but as Oscar Gandhi foresaw nearly three decades ago in his great book, The Panoptic Sort, categorization must be used to aid more effective discrimination, whether in the hands of those who sell goods or services, where maybe we don't care so much all of the time, particularly if we get a good deal on our flights or whatever, or in the hands of states and other forces that seek to govern us. And this, of course, gives added edge to tool reversibility. When the tool reverses, it may operate to cut us out of one resource or another. And as my LSE colleague, Sita Gangodharan, has shown, this has huge long-term implications for reproduction of inequality, class inequality especially. And then third, the interconnectedness of tools in a datafied environment guarantees that with more use comes our greater dependence. Dependence not on any particular tool, but on the whole infrastructure, on its conditions of operation. American legal theorist Julie Cohen calls this situation authoritarian. I'm always interested when the very sober people who legal theorists normally are start to use words apparently with abandon, like authoritarian. It's used with great consideration. Why is it authoritarian? Because it requires our continuous submission to authority. How else can we understand a world where social and economic order increasingly is understood by influential actors such as the OECD and the World Economic Forum as entailing the expansion of large-scale processes of surveillance based on only partial consent? A world where when our relations with information systems break down, so our password or our account settings stop working and so on, 
which hits us physically, that moment of terror. The social order seems to be fracturing. Our ontological security, mine does at least, definitely feels under challenge. For some, nonetheless, the local benefits of playing with the tools of surveillance capitalism still seem to outweigh the costs. The data game has a social meaning after all, often a pleasurable one. I don't deny that. So we must ask, does the idea of the quantified self itself have some natural limits? Can we imagine, for example, another thought experiment, can we imagine an app that measured whether one was really in love with someone, some particular person? Can we imagine that app being used against us and being absolutely relaxed about that? Depends. Can we imagine an app that compared how one's processes of creativity hold up against established measures of creative inspiration? Beethoven's, for example, maybe some data will be found to measure that. Can we be utterly relaxed about an app that would compare the depth of one's grieving for a loved one against that of real or imagined others? When does the growth in our submission to measurement start to hit up against something important that we might want to protect. We can now debate, no doubt debate, the rights and wrongs of specific examples. They're really not the point. But I would suggest that in the end, the idea of quantifying the self does not scale. They remain aspects of our experience as subjects, aspects where our autonomous development as moral and social beings is at stake, which are damaged if we let them be cohabited without limit by systems of surveillance whose ends we cannot control, because that's tool reversibility. In which case, the general notion of the quantified self is a fiction. It's a collection of interesting tactics for medium-term benefit for particular groups of people. Indeed, the quantified self notion is itself arguably reliant at least in the broad cultural terms, on some notion of personal autonomy that underpins whatever value accrues to its tactical games. If so, when it claims generality, it becomes incoherent. I could say, of course, much more about the problems that I think flow from installing continuous surveillance and the norms and power structures on which its operations depend as a principle for managing the governance of everyday life. But I need to draw towards my conclusion. If we take seriously the warnings of legal theorists such as Julie Cohen, we surely must think carefully about the consequences of such a profound shift in the balance of power between the corporate sector and those outside it, not just for its own sake, but for the ongoing legitimacy of legal and political structures. A rebalancing that is played out across every sector of life, from labor markets to healthcare, from family life to government policy and affects individuals in every aspect of what they do, including those processes of self-examination through which they come to know themselves as selves and others as others. And we, I think, can oppose claims that big data, the unending harvest of a functioning surveillance economy, the claims that big data will enhance policy development and human self-awareness, we can oppose them by pointing out that one thing big data analysis cannot and does not provide is an analysis of the social forces that have produced its own claims. About its own claims to power, big data must remain silent. 
We cannot therefore afford to turn our backs on this huge transformation in the very basis of social and economic order. We cannot ignore the contradictions that are building between this new order's imperatives and the norms embedded in our inherited forms of political and individual life. It is not enough just to disconnect, even if we could. For sure, Yevgeny Morozov offers an important provocation when he calls for a right to disconnect. But what I enjoyed that piece hugely. It made me feel uplifted. But when we think about it, what does that right to disconnect amount to when the infrastructure from which one seeks to disconnect has become essential to one's daily functioning? Instead, we need collectively to reflect on what it would be to rebuild the infrastructures of communication differently. For this, it is not enough to rely on, as many people do, on the savviness, sorry, the savviness, the timing is busy. We can't just rely on the savviness, obviously, greater savviness than mine, of, towards data processes as regards browsers, cookies, and so on, that many people, of course, particularly including younger people, undoubtedly have and is to be admired and praised. Because this savviness, for reasons I've explained, will always likely fall short of the systemic scope of today's practices of surveillance. And in any case, such smartness cannot compensate for, let alone justify, what has been lost, what has been taken from us. One tool, however, that remains in our hands and is not reversible is the ability to interpret our common world, to compare whatever order is emerging in that world to the norms that we, by which we will want to judge any social order. So to conclude, I want to ask, is today's emerging social order a space of unimaginable excitement in which to quote West Coast guru Kevin Kelly, the editor of Wired. Maybe that's Kevin Kelly coming in right now and to say that wasn't the quote I wanted you to put up. I don't know. It could be. Um, Kevin Kelly wrote in his book, What Technology Wants, technology is stitching together all the minds of the living, the whole aggregation, nice word, the aggregation, watching itself through a million cameras posted daily. Or is it to borrow the words of the great German writer W.G. Seaboard, are we involved in a silent catastrophe that occurs almost unperceived? Whichever vision we follow, and we may debate this, what is currently being built is not freedom. And that is a choice, I suggest, whose price we must weigh very carefully. Thanks for listening.